We're going to be looking in the New Testament this morning. We're going to be in the book of Galatians, just a few verses. And if you're here and you're without a Bible, all the verses that uh, I plan to interact with are there in the bulletin. So you can just follow along there if you'd like to. And again, welcome to all who are here. Uh, if I, I do sound a little bit more nasally. I have a cold. And the reason I want to draw attention to that, besides just acknowledging it, is that if I were you and we had the Lord's Supper coming up, I would be wondering, did he wipe his nose during the service or cough into his hand? And then he's going to pick that bread up and is there a way out of here? And uh, so the plan is when we come to the Lord's Supper after this, I'm um, I'm going to remind us of the things that Jesus said for us to remember when we come to the Lord's table. But Mike Swart, who started us off, he's going to be the hands of the Lord's Supper. So uh, all this, and, uh, and Mike is germ-free, we know. So um, everything I'm not, he is. Galatians 5, we're going to be looking at verse 1 and then um, verses 13 to 15. Um, you know, I've heard more than one person say this, and I think this is very accurate, that the history of the Christian church is a history of a lot of overcorrections. And uh, as, as people tend to do, when we correct one thing, more often than not, the pendulum doesn't just come to the sweet spot. The pendulum sort of overswings, and we fix one extreme with what? With another extreme. And when you look at the history of the church, that just happens over and over and over again. A um, couple of examples. Uh, the Lord's Supper. By the time of the Protestant Reformation, really, this had, this had gone from something pretty simple that the Lord Jesus gave to his people to something pretty complicated with a lot of things added, added in and farmed in over the years. And really the entire service began to be built around it, not really around the Word. You know, if you go into one of these ancient cathedrals and the acoustics are horrible for speaking, but wherever you are, you've got a clear sight of the altar, that, there's a theological reason for that. And not so much during the Reformation, but then really in the years after the Reformation, the church overcorrected. And most Protestants didn't celebrate it enough. They went from the whole service is about this to let's just have it four times a year, which and that's horrible. Uh, a more current example, 20th, more of a 20th century example, you know, a lot of Christians in the 20th century looked up, especially in the United States, and said, look, I mean, the, the Old and the New Testament talk a lot about things like doing justice, and showing mercy, especially with the... Mar- I mean, that's what we've talked about already this morning, and the marginalized. And, uh, and the church is not... I mean, that's in our Bible, and we're not talking about it, and we're not doing it. But sometimes what churches did was where there had been neglect of that, the pendulum swung so far over that it, Christianity almost became nothing but that at the expense of other things. Maybe at the expense of preaching the gospel of Jesus very clearly. But that just seems to be the, the, our tendency and the church's tendency to, to, to take one extreme and to overcorrect and go to another extreme. Now, here's, here's why I bring that up. We are just in a few verses of Galatians this morning. And Galatians is by the Apostle Paul. It's one of his letters. And it's, this, this letter has been called the Magna Carta of Christian Liberty. Now, Paul, when, he, when this has come up recently... When he wants to tell you what Jesus did, what the gospel is, he has all kinds of different ways of explaining that, like like the whole Bible does. 
He might talk about, you know, we were stained and Christ cleansed us. Or uh, we needed to be redeemed and Christ purchased us with his blood. Or the wrath of God was something that we deserved and Christ took away the wrath of God. He's got all kinds of different ways of saying, here's what the gospel is. But in Galatians, especially in this part we're going to look at, the, the, the drum he is beating is that Christ liberated his people. Christ liberated his people. Christ set his people free. Free from what? And we're going to talk about this. Free from what the law of God would do to us if we didn't have a Savior. Because it would do something that we do not want it to do. That Christ came to liberate us from that. But here's what I want you to look at. Paul knows what we're like. Paul knew what he was like. And what he does, he says, all right, look, on the one hand, Christ frees us from what the law would have done to us, what we would have done with the law. But I want you to see how Christ frees us from correcting that extreme with another extreme. Christ comes and frees us from two extremes, and they both come up in this text. We, we are in a sermon series that we're calling The Habits of Love. And just talking about what the basic Christian life, the basic practices of the Christian life. What I want to look at this morning is service. I think very appropriate uh, in, in line with Orphan Care Sunday. But here, here's the thing we're trying to stay on is that these aspects of the Christian life are things that we want to be harnessed not just to should or to ought, but to love. And we've said this every week. Duty is not a bad word. Habits are not a bad word. Responsibility, not a bad word. But we want to do what we do in the Christian life, not just out of should, but because it flows out of love. And what I want to see from this text this morning is how service could flow out of love. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Same chapter, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, please take your word now and feed us. Feed us even if we don't know that we're hungry. Nourish us even if we don't know that we're undernourished. Uh, quench our thirst even if we don't know that we're thirsty. And enlighten us even if we don't know that we, we've been acting out of darkness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I saw an article uh, online this week. This got one of these things that got passed, passed around by several of my friends. And uh, it was written by, and it was on the internet, so I'm assuming it's true. But uh, it's by a guy named Tom Rayner. 
and he's a Christian writer, consultant, um, leader, all that kind of stuff. The name of this piece is The Autopsy of a Deceased Church, 11 Things I Learned. And what he wrote about was that, uh, well, 10 years ago, he was brought in by a church, and this church back in its heyday, back in the 70s, I think it had something like 700 and something members, and now it was down to under 100, and they just, they knew they were dying. And uh, this guy in the church wanted to bring Tom in as a consultant, and the church really didn't want to bring him in, but this guy just finally said, I'll pay for the whole thing. So he brings him in and uh, lets him be there for several days, talk to people, interview, and consult. And when he got through consulting, he, he told the man, he said, your church's doors are going to close in five years. And this article, he says, I was wrong. It was Tim. They held on tenaciously. But he, he sort of autopsied the church. And, he, and nothing about this is ha-ha. He doesn't write this with any you know, glee. I was right. But listen to some of the points, some of the little bullet points that he learned from the autopsy. This is just a few. The church had no community-focused ministries. None. Members became more focused on memorials. In other words, tell the church, we're going to reach out to our community, yawn, crickets. Um, Memorials to your friends that can be put on chairs. Everybody got energized. The percentage of the budget for members' needs kept increasing. At the church's death, the percentage was over 98%. They spent 98% of their budget on themselves. There were no evangelistic emphases, and the church rarely prayed together. By rarely, he meant the church prayed together that three- or four-minute prayer they had during the worship service. And get this, prayers were always limited to members, their friends and families, and their physical needs. Some people have called that the organ recital prayer, you know, stomach, liver, organs. Well, what was the working assumption of that church? I doubt anybody would have said this, but just, you know, we talk about there's official theology and real theology. What was the real theology of the church? If they were that tenacious in keeping a church, here's what I I would assume, that the real theology was Jesus Christ saved us from our sins and we exist for ourselves. If you want to know how the church really was working, that's what the actions were. And and we can throw no stones because that just comes naturally to the heart for Christians. Now, it ought not, but ought doesn't matter sometimes. We should be the people wanting to serve. But what comes naturally to us is, man, I'm so glad I have eternal life. I'm so glad that there are these people I like and they have eternal life. I'm so glad we have each other and we turn inward. And that rather than being like a a, a group of people holding hands faced outward, it's like a group of people holding hands and the ring is turned in on itself. That is a recipe to die. Now this text... Paul is saying this, the gospel is awesome. And the gospel is about you being free. If Christianity makes you more and more and more run down and ground down, then you may not be hearing what the gospel is. It is supposed to be wings. It's supposed to make your chains come off. That's what the hymns say, right? But the 
our tendency, because of this thing called the flesh, just the residue of the old us, it, it turns in on ourselves. And so here, here's what I want to look at from this text, just two things and then try to flesh it out. One is the, the gospel of freedom and the practice of freedom. And I want, to, I want to give a few things to think about us here practicing freedom. But just even in the text, how Paul says to practice gospel freedom. The gospel of freedom and the practice of freedom. All right, first off, the gospel of freedom. Now, let me see if I can distill the book of Galatians down to like a minute. Paul had gone into this area of Galatia, and he and others had preached the gospel, and they preached it the way it ought to be preached. No strings attached. And people responded, and churches started, and Paul and his companions moved on. And then people came behind him, and they're known as the Judaizers. Now, this is very important. The message of the Judaizers was not, hey, that guy's nuts, do not believe in Jesus. That was not their message. The message of the Judaizers was, what Paul told you is true, but there's another component that he left out. You have to believe in Jesus. He is the Messiah. He fulfills the scriptures. But you men must also be circumcised. If you're going to be the real people of God and keep the scriptures, you must be circumcised. And Paul got wind of that and went ballistic. He says some of the most severe things he says in any of his letters are in Galatians. Because here's the deal. He says, all right, this is a package deal. If you're going to go back to the law as something that can save you, here's what you need to know. And this is in Galatians chapter 3. He quotes the law. He says, all right, you want to save yourselves with the law? Good. Then we need to know what the law says, right? If you're going to keep the terms to save yourself, you need to know the terms. Here's the terms. The law says, quote, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by everything written in the book of the law to perform it. In other words, obedience that can save you must be personal, everyone, perpetual, never-ending, no divergence, and perfect, So all you have to do is 100% of you have to keep 100% of the law, 100% of the time, and and you'll be free. How's it going? Because obviously the answer is, no one can do that. And Paul would say, exactly. And the law itself says, if you don't keep it that perfectly, you are under a curse. But then he says this, you know what else the law says? And you can find all this in Galatians 3. It says, the law says that if anyone is hanged on a tree, that person becomes cursed. He says, do you know what that means for you? According to the law, it means that Jesus Christ, when he was hanged, and that is the appropriate past tense, not hung, hanged. When he was hanged on that tree, the cross... He was even fulfilling that aspect of the law. He was becoming the curse that we deserved. He was absorbing the curse. He was lifting it off his people and taking it on himself so that we could be free from the the accusation and condemnation of the law. Now, Paul loves telling people that, that it is faith plus Nothing to be saved. And when God saves somebody, 
does he bring about all kinds of fruit in their lives? Does he, does he cultivate obedience in their lives? Yeah, we're about to talk about that. But if we're talking about this is the little wall where you're not saved on this side and you're saved on this side, do not put any requirements on this side except believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or it's not the gospel. Now that's the gospel of freedom. And, and if, if, if you're here... And anything I just said doesn't make sense or is unclear, I would love to talk to you about that because we talk about this all the time here. The gospel is everything. But then he talks about, all right, so when you really get that, what do you do with it? If you really get the gospel, how do you practice it? Now, I want you to go back to how we started about the pendulum about the overcorrection. Here's the tendency of the human heart. To, here, here's the tendency of bad practice, malpractice, we might say, is to say, okay, the law condemned me and found me guilty, and it was the reason why I deserve the wrath of God. Is that right? That's right. And so it found me guilty, and it had me dead to rights, and I was under its condemnation. That's correct. Okay, well then, then, all right, let's stay away from that. And the pendulum swings way over here to a position of, instead of trying to earn my way through the law, is avoid the law. Be anti-law. It's actually a theological word for that. The Greek word for law is nomos. And so there's a theological word to be antinomian or antinomianism, which is just a mouthful to say, hey, if you believe the gospel, stay away from that law, that thing condemns you. And Paul says, that's correcting one extreme with another extreme. Christ took away our condemnation that we deserved, but he also gave us another freedom, which is what? He freed us from being slaves to ourselves. Did you hear him use the term? Look in verse 13. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What is the flesh? It's the residue of the old us. It's the us that I want what I want. I'll be the master of my own fate. I'll craft my designer life. Christ frees us from the condemnation of the law, but he frees us from slavery to self. Now, what does that look like? Um, about two and a half years ago, there was a piece in the New York Times. It's written by um, a woman named Wendy Plump. And this is, it, this is the most descriptive piece I've ever read about adultery. And I don't mean descriptive in unnecessary detail, but I mean someone writing about um, her husband had done this and she had done it. So she, she had felt it and she had engaged in it and she writes from the inside out about what is this experience. Uh, the name of this piece is A Room Full of Yearning and Regret. Now, I'm just going to read a couple of portions here. She says, okay, will there be excitement? Yes. You know that. She says, what you don't know or perhaps what you don't allow yourself to think about is that your life will become an unbearable mix of yearning and regret because of it. 
it will be difficult, if not impossible, to be in any one place with contentment. This is no way for an adult to live. When you're with your lover, you'll be working on your alibi and feeling loathsome. When you're with your spouse, you'll be dying to return to your love nest. When you are at home, everything in your life will look just a little bit out of register. The furniture, the food in your refrigerator, your children, your dog. Because you've detached yourself from your normal point of reference and now it belongs to a reality that you've abandoned. You will be pulled between two poles. One of obligation and responsibility, the other of pleasure and escape. And the stress of these opposing forces will threaten to split you in two. And one one other part. She says, as she was writing this, she looked at her own parents. And her parents were 75 years old. They had been married for over 50 years. They had had their ups and downs. And here's what she says. "If, If you were 75, which would you rather have? Years of steady, if occasionally strained devotion, or something that looks a little bit like the Iraqi city of Fallujah, cratered with spent artillery? And here's how she ends. From where I stand now, it all just looks like a cheap hotel room. Whether you're in that room to have an affair or to escape from the discovery of one. Now, she doesn't use this word, but what, what experience is she describing? Slavery. That is slavery. And the good news that I, I, I want us to hear this morning is, like, think about... Christ frees from two extremes, even in that regard. I mean, let, let's, let's, let's be direct here. If you have committed adultery and you come to Christ, He makes you clean. You don't stand before God behind the eight ball in His eyes. You are washed clean. You are accepted. You are beloved. You are adopted. You are in the sight of God blameless for that sin. That's freedom. But here's the thing. Christ also frees us unto obedience. In other words, I don't want you to be in slavery of condemnation for that sin, but I don't want you to engage in the slavery of that behavior and what it will do to your insides and to the people around you. I want to free you from both. Does that make sense? Both the extremes. All right, so Paul says, look, Christ came to give us freedom, all right? So what's the big application? Okay, what is it going to be? Is it going to be worship? Some biggie like, therefore, we worship God by doing the following. And you know what Paul's big takeaway is? Serving other people. In fact, and this is Paul who grew up uber-Jewish. He says, when you love other people, when you love your neighbor as yourself, and, and I'll tell you, I love myself. Now, sometimes I hate myself, but a lot of the time, I'm crazy about myself. And he said, I mean, he's quoting Leviticus. That's the template for how you really care for other people. When you do that, Paul says, you keep the whole law. And that's not the only place he says that in the New Testament. Unbelievable. Serve one another. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Well, how do we flesh that out? 
in, in our, in our uh, community here? Well, I've said this every sermon. I want to give you 35 points. I've got time for like four. So let's see what we can do. The first is this. And to me, this is one of the hardest ones, but we've got to say this one if we're going to talk about being people who love and serve. And before I even say this, I've got to get this off my chest. A very good friend of mine who's also a preacher has said, you know what, the more faithfully you preach, the bigger a hypocrite you become. And that's about to spike right now. Because, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I am your fellow struggler on everything we ever talk about, but on this one, my hypocrisy is about to, like, hit new heights before you. So let's just... There it is. We are stewards of our day, not owners. And if that does not get into our hearts more and more, we are... Our service is going to be sort of show and not substance. Um, I quoted screw tape letters last week. I, I can't help but mention it again. In one of the screw tape letters, screw tape the demon says to his nephew about the patient, the man he's trying to tempt and ruin. He says, You know, your patient wakes up every day believing that he is the lawful possessor of 24 hours. And he essentially says, You want to really fan that flame. And when I read those words, I, that, that's the hypocrisy that I feel. We, at the end of the day, own nothing. And I'm, that's not communism. That's not socialism. That's reality. That God owns everything and he allows us to steward things. And there is such a thing as private property and, and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day... He calls the shots about what comes in and out of our day. I mean, if we were planning it, who of us would have said, okay, Kirk and Hannah, we think the very best time for you to get a call from DSS is when you're at a stress level of 9.8. But that was God's plan. That was God's perfect plan. And... uh, Time is the thing that we are always wrestling with. Time is the thing that we always feel like we can't get our hands around the ideal use of our time, and so we protect it tenaciously. Is it good to have a plan? Yes, that is wise. Is it good to be fruitful? Yes, that is wise. Until we become so territorial about our calendar that other people can't come in. And before we talk about any particulars, I think the thing we've got to look at is to to open ourselves up to be convicted by God about, am I so protective of my time that there isn't space for a curveball, a curveball comprised of the needs of others? Because then what that essentially is, is I, I have sort of spiritualized my selfishness. I'm calling it things like fruitfulness, Um, wise use of my time, but what I've essentially done is I've boxed out others. Because we live in a city that loves volunteerism. We live in a city that loves community service. It loves it so much, it takes pictures of it. 
And there are a lot of upsides to that. But the thing is, if, if we're engaging in service, we're servants. If you're a servant, you don't write the script. If you're a servant, you serve when you're called upon to serve, whether that was written down or not. I think we have to start there if we're going to change. And here's the beautiful thing. If that means, man, yikes, I need to repent, we can repent. We can turn to God and say, I just am like a shark about my time. Help me. Or whatever predator you want to... Bear. Whatever. Uh, Second thing, begin with the pinky. What does that mean? Uh, I heard someone say one time, if a person has been in a coma and then she consciously moves her little finger, that's a big deal. Now, what, what, so, so what? Meaning, if, if, you, if you're hearing this and you think, man, I am very territorial about my schedule. I'm very protective of my time. I don't leave spaces for other people to come in. And I do think I'm the lawful possessor of those 24 hours. <clears throat> um, maybe I need to move to Bangalore and take care of street children. I wouldn't start there. I would start with what you can do. And here's what I mean. Do we want like, serve, like Christian service in our church's life? Do we want that to just equal? We write checks to good organizations and we take meals to new mothers. We are servants. Do we, do we want that to just exhaust what it means to be Christian servants? No. But if, if our day has been so hermetically sealed that hardly anything's getting in, take a meal to a new mother. Write a check to someone to start somewhere. And I say this as somebody that's had to deal with this in my own life because my kind of perfectionism is, I don't totally understand that yet, so I'd better not start. And you can do that with service in our community. You can do that with service in our church. I'm not yet sure of the ideal use of my gifts and abilities and interests and who I should focus on, so therefore I'm not going to do anything until I totally understand it. Start somewhere. Move your pinky because you've been free to do that. Begin with each other. Um, we, We have an email that you can sign up for It's not required. It's called our needs and requests email. And this is the sleeper hit of downtown Presbyterian. And the reason I say that, I can't even remember who thought of it. But when someone needs something, or it's just, I might need a job, I might need a freezer, it could be anything. I might need someone to host this person. It's just sort of thrown out there. I owe that we could tell you the stories of how God has worked through our own church family to meet these needs for people to be served, and it was never advertised. It just, boom. Multiple times, by the time I asked about it, the need was met. What if you signed up for that and just tried it on for size? If you feel like, okay, I want to serve, but I don't know where to start. What if you started there? Or or what if you started with a community group? 
mean, it's not like we have got a group of 10 people and everybody has hunky-dory lives and no one needs anything. I hope not. That would be weird. Someone needs something. Someone needs service. Someone needs encouragement or something. And to start there. Don't go to Bangalore first. It's just, it's right there. Um, Lest this go unsaid, children, children need serving. And man, that thing of like, this public thing that I'm going to do on my terms, on my schedule, and I'm going to get credit for it, and there'll there'll be good PR for me about what I did. If there's anyone that can neutralize that, it's children in the nursery. Okay, you held me for 10 minutes, and I'm going to thank you by hitting you. Thanks. <laughs> they are part of our community. God will feel to them the way we treat them. Jesus will feel to them the way we treat them. Will you be able to photograph it and put it in any high-gloss magazine in our city? No but you will be serving the the least of these. The last thing is to love downtown where downtown can feel it. And what I mean by that, and and the further away you live from where we're sitting, I'd say more and more this is relevant to you. We want any of our church members to participate in the life and mission of our church downtown. And that includes things like artosphere and eat out downtown and walk up and down Main Street. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. Do it. But our city will not care what hymns we pick out. Our city doesn't care about our good instincts about this or that. What, what, they, what our city will care about is... Do you serve others in any felt way? If you don't know where to start, maybe there is some... And this Again, I'm not going to hover over anybody, but there may be some sign-up sheet out there that ends up being a path out of self-absorption. But you know what? I don't know where to start. I'm going to put my name down here and kind of see what happens. And see where God takes that. We're located downtown. We pray for the downtown. We love being involved in the cultural life of the downtown. But, y'all, our church's mission is we, we are to serve the downtown. And there's going to be some haves and there are going to be some have-nots. And if it never includes the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, do we love what God loves and hate what God hates? Let me end with this. Um, I wish I had more time on this, but I'm just, I'm just throwing this out before we wrap up. At the end of uh, Harry Potter, the Chamber of Secrets, Dobby, the house elf, is freed. And um, just freed from his horrible owner, evil, mean owner, to, by Harry. And with, I wish I could give all the cool quotes and all that, but ju- I just want you to think about this. When Dobby the house elf is freed from slavery, 
two things happen. He's able to look at his old master and really be angry the way he'd always wanted to be. And the second thing is that he immediately gushed with love for Harry. Now, all through that story, he's, he, there's kind of this slavish, fawning, you know, Harry Potter, you just, you know, kind of, I'll do anything. But it's, it's slavish. But when he's freed, he loves Harry Potter. And they love each other for the rest of, well, you can fill in the blanks. Um, if it is hard for us to serve except on our terms, it's not just a time management problem. It's a gospel problem. But the good news is, hey, then what do we need? We need the good news. And today would be a great day for us to come back and say, I was a slave to sin and death, and I could not free myself. And I know I know that, but do I know that? Jesus freed me from sin and death. And He has shown me what it looks like to give one's life away, even to the least of these. Christ Jesus, free me to walk where you've walked. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, help us we don't want to turn service into a new hoop to jump through to get you to like us. Oh Lord, you have freed us in Christ Jesus through your Son who didn't come to be served but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. But now that you have freed us to walk in obedience and love, make us serving people. We want to pray, even this morning, that you dislodge old selfish tendencies in us, old self-protective ways. Enable us to figure out very particular ways to care for each other, and to care for Greenville, to care for our world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.